What is it that makes evil so powerful? According to the Tao Te Ching, in some ways, we do. Writing to the government and military leaders of his time, Lao Tzu said, Center your country in the Tao, and evil will have no power. Not that it isn't there, but you'll be able to step out of its way. Give evil nothing to oppose, and it will disappear by itself. These are idealistic words, to be sure, and to take them literally without careful consideration could be disastrous, especially when it comes to how we define this idea of giving evil nothing to oppose. If it means looking at the brokenness of our world with its long list of corruption, abuse, dehumanization, and murder from the small scale of individual relationships to the wide horizon of governments and whole societies, and simply accepting and letting that roll off of our shoulders with an apathetic shrug, well, if it means that, then we are not reading this chapter well. The word translated evil in this, in this version was literally the ghosts, the harmful spirits in ancient Chinese mythology. What if we rethought how we respond to the ghosts in our lives? The ones who wish us harm, or actively criticize us, or try to stain our reputation, or try to prevent us from living to our full potential. Instead of a defensive attitude, what if we tried to proactively maintain our integrity, instead of fighting to prove it? Instead of an argumentative attitude, we could stay committed to peacemaking. Not the false peace of sweeping things under the rug or putting on a fake smile, but the true peace of forgiveness, which starts internally in us and then spreads like wildfire to those around us. The Tao Te Ching says that the ghosts will still be there, and they might still have power in a sense, but that power won't be able to touch us. We will be able to, quote, step out of the way, as it says. And if we give evil nothing to oppose, Maybe it will stop altogether as those ghosts who seek to haunt us see the error of their ways, or maybe just tire themselves out altogether. But even if they don't disappear, as this chapter says, the only power that they will have over our hearts and minds is power that we choose, directly or indirectly, to give them. Although it usually takes a lot of internal work and deep contemplation we have incredible power to determine the things that put burdens on our hearts, for good or for evil. This is one of the many profound lessons of the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that didn't draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name is Corey Farr, and this is episode 46 of A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. In this podcast, I work through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end. It has 81 chapters, and I explain different ways that I've seen this book connecting with the life, my life as a Jesus follower, the ways that it radically transformed my perspective, and the ways in which it does not offer a sort of second religion in any way, but a different perspective on things that often... Uh, complements very nicely the teachings of Jesus. 
If you're a first-time listener, the best thing to do is go back and listen to episode one, uh, which provides an introduction to the series, explains kind of what's going on here, how I discovered the Tao Te Ching, what it is, and sort of the, the reason for this show. You can also head on over to my blog at coryfar.com. Uh, there is a series of blog posts that follows the podcast. It's kind of uh, on hiatus right now, but at least the first uh, few dozen, I want to say the first 30 plus episodes are still there. Each one has a post that kind of summarizes the main points of the episode. So you can check that out again at coryfar.com. There is a link in the show notes. In today's episode, we'll be looking at chapter 60, which is kind of a weird, funny little chapter with several distinct ideas that are all mashed together in kind of a confusing way. It's got fish frying in the first line, and then a bunch of stuff about ghosts and spirits, and then an exhortation to nonviolence and a nonviolent spirit. And so we'll unpack this, ep- this chapter in three different sections. At first, I'll briefly look at this very odd line that compares leading a nation to cooking a fish. And then I'll spend a lot of time on the section that you just heard in the introduction, since I really, really love that. And I'm going to use several different translations and consider how we can use this section to ponder the nature of and the relationship between what we call good and evil. And then in the third section, I'm going to use a very different interpretation of this same part of the chapter that implies the way that we are haunted by our past and what we can do about it, rather than some kind of struggle between good and evil. And so there are a lot of angles to cover, a lot of things to say, so let's go ahead and dive right in by hearing chapter 60 from Stefan Stenud's great translation. Ruling a great country is like cooking a small fish. When the world is ruled according to the way, the ghosts lose their power. The ghosts do not really lose their power, but it is not used to harm people. Not only will their power not harm people, nor will the wise person harm people, since neither of them causes harm, and unified virtue is restored. As I said last week, we're in the middle of a little series of chapters where Lao Tzu really focuses much more intensely on governance and national leadership. A lot of his book, a lot of his lessons, and his words specifically here are directed to the leaders of nations and leaders of armies. Although, as you've seen, there are many principles that we can draw out and learn from, as I tried to show last week. But the first couple lines of this chapter are pretty hard to make much sense of at all. They're very unclear, and although I was happy at least to see that almost every commentator and translator drew out the same idea in their paraphrase or commentary, some of them add an additional line to kind of explain what's going on here. But literally translated, just leaving it as it it is, the first line is, ruling the country is like cooking a small fish. And then suddenly Lao Tzu changes topics and starts talking about the nature of evil or ghosts, which we're going to look at after we deal with this weird little line. So first, Stephen Mitchell, along with many other translators, actually inserts a line, as I said, after this one to make the traditionally accepted meaning of it uh, a little bit more clear. He says, Governing a large country is like frying a small fish. You spoil it with too much poking. A little bit colorful imagery there, and 
Ron Hogan um, does the same thing, although his application is really a lot more vague and not quite so graphic, but he says, being a leader is like cooking a small fish. Get right with Tao, and it's quick and easy. So that's a different angle, and now for even a fun little tidbit, uh, while I was researching this, I found out that Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, actually used this line during his 1988 State of the Union address to the American people. He also added some context, though, and this helps uh, explain his interpretation. He said, govern a great nation as you would cook a small fish. Do not overdo it. And it's surprising that of all the lines of the Tao Te Ching that are so great and powerful, Reagan chose this one, which to me is one of the strangest. But then again, I really doubt that he was an avid reader of the Tao Te Ching. I'm sure this was proposed to him by one of his scriptwriters or something he came across in any number of ways, but I don't think he was reading the Tao Te Ching actively. Of all the different translations that I read, though, and again, I usually use at least, I think it's 16 uh, translations when I prep for these episodes, I did find that Oliver Benjamin is probably the clearest in this section. He says, A sage governs a large group in the same way that he would cook a delicate fish. That is to say, he meddles as little as possible. And then he goes on and explains this in quite a bit more detail in his commentary. He writes, Chapter 60 is one of the most prized and highly quoted chapters of the Tao Te Ching. Which, side note, that's kind of surprising to me, but... uh, He says, largely because of the potency and humor in its illusion about the fish. Experienced cooks don't poke at their food too much while they're frying or grilling because it will fall apart and the delicate juices and flavors will be lost to the fire. Similarly, when a governor meddles too much in the affairs of the governed, the people lose their natural enthusiasm, their trust, confidence, and energy. To be oppressed, overburdened, and overtaxed appears to have been the price of living in mass civilization. And although this may augment and protect the power of bureaucrats and leaders, ultimately it saps the cohesion and potential of the state as a whole. Time and time again throughout history, this misunderstanding of the vector of value and unchecked greed on the part of the governing classes ultimately leads to the collapse of empire. As discussed in chapter 18, here we again witness the negative power of top-down governance as it enfeebles the organic momentum of natural systems. I just love Benjamin's writing. It's so great. And as I read this, I think of King David's census in the Bible. I know generally I focus on on Christ in this uh, in this podcast, but also I love to bring in some Old Testament passages when they apply. And early in his reign, King David decided to make records of all the men in Israel for the purpose of drafting soldiers and levying taxes. And so in both accounts of this story, in the books of Second Samuel and then again in First Chronicles, the author's attitude is definitely negative towards this. One of them says, you know, confusing and theologically weird way that it was the Lord's anger that prompted David David to take the census. Uh, The other author says that it was actually Satan, or the accuser, literally, that incited David to take a census of the people of Israel. 
But even before that, when Israel first asked for a king instead of the temporary judges, who were more like tribal leaders and occasionally military commanders, when Israel asked for a king to rule over them, the author says that God viewed this as their as them rejecting himself as their king. And so the, the, the book says, these are the rights of a king. He will draft your sons, make them serve on his chariots and horses, and make them run ahead of his chariots. He will appoint them to be his officers over 1,000 or 50 soldiers, to plow his ground and harvest his crops, and to make weapons and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters and have them make perfumes and cook and bake. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive orchards and give them to his officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and wine and give it to his aides and officials. He will take your male and female slaves, your best cattle, and your donkeys for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. Now, incidentally, we read that all of these things, word for word, happened during the reign of Solomon, which was just one generation into this new kingship that they said they wanted, or at least one generation into the the Davidic line of the kingship. There was Saul before that, but uh, under David's time was really when the kingship was really consolidated in the sense that uh, it would later be seen. Now back to the Tao Te Ching here. Derek Lin, in his commentary, does, I think, the best job of making this line relevant for our daily lives and not just as political theory. If you use too much heat, you will overcook the fish. If you keep turning the fish over and over, it will fall apart. Similarly, if a ruler or a leader constantly meddles in the affairs of the people with excessive rules and regulations, the country becomes chaotic and everyone suffers. Similarly, when we manage our lives, we also need to be careful not to second-guess ourselves too much. People who frequently change their minds or turn their decisions over like the fish tend to fail in life. And so this is another example of how the Tao Te Ching can be what, again, Oliver Benjamin calls a self-help book for the world itself. As his commentary says, although we tend to think of the Tao Te Ching as a sort of self-help book for the individual, which is how I've presented it on this show, it was actually written for a political leader, or perhaps various leaders, to help them govern their constituencies. Of course, as most of our explanatory essays suggest, this does not mean that its messages can't be applied to the individual, but it does help to remind us that the Tao is not all about us, It's also about our relationship to society. Given that the Tao is an all-encompassing metaphysics that transcends the perceivable world, and te, or virtue, represents the efficient and prodigal aspects within the world, perhaps, and here's the the clincher, it would be better to refer to the Tao Tao Te Ching as a self-help book for the world itself. And so this is actually a great way to transition into the rest of the chapter, because in this section, Lao Tzu talks much more about societal dynamics of good and evil. And so let me read that section again, uh, using Stefan Stenad's more literal translation. And uh, because of that, it sounds a bit weird, but uh, bear with me, I'm going to do my best to to tackle it. He writes, "When When the world is ruled according to the way... 
The ghosts lose their power. The ghosts do not really lose their power, but it is not used to harm people. Not only will their power not harm people, nor will the sage harm people. Since neither of them causes harm, unified virtue is restored. And so after this easy and light-hearted, as Benjamin says, uh, fish comment, Lao Tzu goes right back into his more usual deep and philosophical musing on the nature of the universe. And there are a number of ways that we could take this section and we could try to apply it to our lives. Uh, Today, I'm just going to look at two, and I would love to hear if you have ideas of others. You can always reach out to me by the contact button on my blog. Uh, But as you heard in the first translation, the original and the more literal wording had to do with ghosts. And so according to Stefan Stenid, the ghosts, or Kuei, I think it's it's said, Kuei, were the restless spirits of deceased ancestors, according to beliefs at the time of Lao Tzu. That's quite the same as what we mean by ghosts. And just like this chapter says, we foster the idea that the ghosts are only harmful if they are displeased. If the country is ruled wisely in accordance with the way, the ghosts will not be upset. Now, Since I would rather avoid a discussion about the relationship between political structure and paranormal activity, since neither of those has much to do with this show, and since I also don't want to do a deep dive into ancient Chinese spiritism, let's consider this from more of a general or metaphorical standpoint, as I did in the introduction. And this is exactly what Stephen Mitchell does, and another of other translators also follow suit here. He writes, center your country in the Tao and evil will have no power. Not that it isn't there, but you'll be able able to step out of its way. Give evil nothing to oppose and it will disappear by itself. We heard that in the introduction. And it's worth noting now as we dive deeper that the Tao Te Ching takes a very different approach to good and evil than those of us in Western culture are used to. Actually, this kind of binary split isn't even found anywhere in the Tao Te Ching. And so it's already kind of an anachronism or kind of imposing our ideology when Mitchell translates ghosts as evil here. For Lao Tzu, the closest that we have to evil is the things that purposely depart from or disturb the way of nature or the way of the Tao. When I, read, when I say that, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's amazing book that I think I've quoted on the show before called Out of the Silent Planet, which is the first in his space trilogy, which is slightly less amazing than the first book, but it's a great trilogy worth reading. But in the first book, a group of three humans journey to the planet Mars, and they encounter a planet and several sentient alien species which are unlike any science fiction that I've ever heard or read or seen. Very different. And so the whole series is kind of a mind-bending meditation on the nature of created beings and divine will and sin and redemption. In some ways, it's very allegorical. While on Mars, they soon discover that the inhabitants of this planet lack a word for evil, and they even lack the ability to understand it or things that come from it, such as greed and lust and war. These kinds of things are completely beyond their understanding, and they cannot grasp why these things would exist. 
And so the closest that they have is a word that they use for the spiritual power of the planet Earth, actually, and for a few people who have gone delinquent from their own society. And this is the power that, in their mind and in the in the mythology of the universe, is the thing that cut the Earth off from divine union with the rest of the planets and the rest of the cosmos. And this power is the Bent One. They call him the Bent One. And so for the Malachandrians, as they're called, of the planet Mars, what we call evil is not a concrete reality, but instead it's a bending of the divine order and the divine will. And the Bent One, who is sort of a shadowy demigod, similar to but not exactly parallel to Satan, loves it this way. Because, as they say in the book, a bent soul can do much more damage than a broken one. And so they say that the bent one loves to keep people bent, not break them. Now that could deserve an episode on its own. But coming back to the Tao Te Ching, this book does not have anywhere even close to such a developed metaphysics and, and philosophy as we see in Lewis's work. And the Tao Te Ching has almost no meta-narrative whatsoever, which as I've said before, is one reason why I find it so adaptable to different worldviews, because they're not an overarching narrative. But that doesn't mean that it has nothing to say on this subject. According to chapter 60 and a number of other parts of this book, evil is not a force to be resisted. Instead, it's more like a disturbance of the natural order, or a veering off course, or a bending that is to be avoided, instead of a force to be resisted. As we see in the first few chapters of Genesis, good, and actually very good, is the default mode of creation. It's the factory settings of the earth and the universe right out of the box. And the concept of good and evil is introduced very early in the story, but it is not as though these are two sort of pre-existent forces in constant battle, this sort of dualism of the constant eternal war between good and evil that is not present in the scriptures. What we call evil is a bending. It's a bug in the system, and it is not part of the original design. Now, I know this all sounds very nice, but how much does it really work? How do these ideas actually apply? Lao Tzu's words, give evil nothing to oppose and it will disappear all by itself, really seem hopelessly idealistic or even totally naive the more you think about it. And I do agree that there are, there are indeed many evil forces. There are evil human impulses that must be contended with. We see that all over the world today. But the way in which we perceive them and we perceive our contending with them makes a lot of difference. I'm reminded here of a chapter from Hieromonk Damascene's book, Christ the Eternal Tao. This is a brilliant book. It's almost impossible to find now. And it is simultaneously academic and theological and historical, as he brings in Eastern Orthodox theology and ancient Taoist history and even ancient Chinese Christian history. But a big part of the book is dedicated to his own sort of Christian Tao Te Ching. I don't know quite how to explain it. It's not a translation at all of the Tao Te Ching, but it's his own 81 chapters, which is like the Tao Te Ching, and he organizes them into nine groups of nine, which each center around a specific theological or, or Christocentric 
theme. And he draws in quotes from both the scriptures and Jesus and from the Tao Te Ching, and he adds a lot of his own to it as well. It's absolutely beautiful. I wish that it was easy to find online. But in the second half of his chapter 52, not chapter 52 of the Tao Te Ching, he writes, When one blames others, there is contention. When one finds one's own faults, there is peace. When one demands restitution for a crime, there is contention. When one forgives, there is peace. When the way took on flesh, he took the blame on himself, and he forgave everyone, even his own murderers. Therefore did he come bringing peace. And yet... This non-contention is in contention with the contention of this world. Therefore did he come, bringing his peace with a sword. Let me read those last two lines again. His non-contention is in contention with the contention of this world. And therefore did he come, bringing his peace with a sword. And that's how Damascene makes sense of that verse. And this might be the closest that we can get to a Christian application of Lao Tzu's principle in our daily lives. And I recognize here that if we teach this passage and others like it in the wrong way, then we could turn this into a very harmful text, encouraging people to find their own faults and to forgive everything instead of blaming others could theoretically and has been used to encourage people to stay in abusive or harmful or toxic relationships. But if we leave space for wise discernment and common sense, as we should, while also recognizing that in many ways Christ turns common sense on its head, then we can follow Christ's lead, I think, in this area. He took the blame on himself, literally. As one Christian author said, and honestly I can't remember who, I tried to find it, but I can't, but he said that Jesus allowed us to sin our sins into him, sin our sins into him, and in that way to defeat evil, or to unbend the bent one, if you want to go back to that image, by taking this sin willingly and then offering forgiveness. Pacifists like myself, we often get the verse about Christ bringing peace with a sword shoved into our faces as an example of Jesus not being entirely nonviolent. But Damascene does something very interesting and creative with these words, He says that it is not Christ openly declaring war, but the fact that his non-contention or his refusal to fight back against evil that we see demonstrated in his life is actually what is in contention with that evil. Because he is the embodiment of the virtue of Tao, if we want to Christianize that word, then he is incorruptible, or if we use our earlier language, he is unbendable. And the tension comes from the hands of those who want to bend him. That is where the tension and the contention come from. Now, I honestly don't know if this is a very good or compelling or even fully logical interpretation. I haven't had time to work through all of it and the implications. But I do think it's very thought-provoking, and I definitely want to invite you to continue exploring it with me. But for now, let's turn the page and let's wrap up this episode by considering this same section from a different angle, following Joseph Owl's brilliant translation, which I really like. 
Instead of translating ghosts here as evil or as dark powers, Owls focuses on the fact that ghosts are the spirits of people who lived in the past. And so then he makes the logical connection to define ghosts as simply the dark parts of our past in general. And so he writes, Model yourself on Tao, and you will not be troubled by the past. The past will have no sway over you. The past will still be the past. It will still have its hurts and traumas. But you will stop defining yourself by what has happened to you. You will no longer be haunted, but whole. You will no longer be haunted, but whole. This is a text that so many people need to hear, and I even encourage you to click the skip back button and listen to that again. It's so powerful. As you know, one of the defining themes of this show is being present. So along with go with the flow, being present is one of the phrases and the ideas that I keep coming back to the most on this show and in my daily life. And we've spent a ton of time focusing on what that means regarding our posture towards the future. We've talked about holding our wishes and our dreams and our desires loosely. We've talked about not allowing anxiety over the unknown to consume us and so on. But, but we haven't spent as much time on what being present looks like with regards to our posture towards the past. But I cannot think of a better way of summing up what that should look like than Joseph Owl's translation. You cannot change the past, and nor can you erase the pain or undo the trauma. But as you draw closer to the model of Tao, the virtue of Te, the image of Christ or the image of God within you, the model that you were truly created to live in, then as he says, you will no longer be haunted but whole. When I think about this topic, one story in particular comes to mind. I know someone who was deeply, deeply hurt by their father when they were young, in a way that I believe has deeply affected the entire course of their life. The dad in question was very unstable, he was unpredictable, he was verbally abusive to everyone and physically abusive to the mother. So it wasn't really out of character when he said some very hurtful comments to this person one day. But what, for whatever reason, this person decided that enough was enough, and he stopped going to visit his dad on weekends. His parents were divorced, and there was a visitation schedule, but he cut off all contact with his dad, and he started refu- refusing to refer to him by anything other than his first name on the rare occasions that he would talk about him at all. When his siblings said the word dad, either talking about stories or just in general, he would emphatically tell them, that man is not my father. And to this day, nearly 20 years later, he has not said a word to his father. And he's completely ignored and even gotten angry when the dad asks the other siblings to reach, uh, to tell this, his son to reach out to him. And he really hasn't spoken to him at all, except for two, I think two times, and both of which were when the dad found out where he worked or where he would be, and then he showed up trying in some way to surprise him, I think, and to make some kind of connection. But it was a terrible idea because he was absolutely furious when this happened. And one time, I'm not joking, he actually told his dad that if he didn't leave from where he he was uh, working at the time in a... As a cashier, he told him at work, he said, if you don't leave right now, I'm going to punch you in the face. Now, 
I don't blame this individual for cutting off those ties. The father, as I said, was unstable. He was incredibly toxic. And I do think he made the right decision in many ways to separate himself from that relationship. And sometimes we have to do that to protect ourselves, especially in the immediate present. But the deep-seated and spiritually poisonous grudge that he has held on to up to this very day has clearly taken its toll on his life. He lives with so much anger in his heart towards this man he refuses to call his father, and I think it's safe to say that even though he won't admit it, he is seriously haunted by his past. I believe that on some level he has also internalized some of his father's demeaning words, because to this day he has an extremely low sense of self-worth and he has sadly resigned himself to the fact that he's never going to amount to anything despite all of the potential that those around him see in him. He has even said often that he hates himself and he doesn't see the point. Now, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to embarrass this person, although I doubt they'll ever listen to this. But I want to acknowledge clearly that they are an incredibly smart and funny and loving person. And as I said, they have so much potential that they're either ignoring or denying or straight up running away from. And so I can't help but believe that it has a lot to do with this internalized rage and unforgiveness. Now, I don't know what it would look like for this person to model himself on Tao. But an easy starting point would be learning to acknowledge and accept his past and to offer forgiveness, at least within his own heart, if not verbally and directly, to his father. I believe that it would bring such healing to his heart. But he has refused to do this, repeating over and over again that the father is guilty and deserves no forgiveness. Without realizing that forgiveness does not have to mean total reconciliation, it doesn't have to mean that the wrongs weren't wrong, but that forgiveness is a healing balm for the heart and the soul of the person doing the forgiving. Again, Joseph Owls says, model yourself on Tao and you will not be troubled by the past. The past will have no sway over you. The past will still be the past. It will still have its hurts and its traumas, but you will stop defining yourself by what has happened to you. You will no longer be haunted, but whole. And again, Hierapolis Damascene's Ennead number 52 says, When one blames others, there is contention. When one finds one's own faults, there is peace. When one demands restitution for a crime, there is contention. When one forgives, there is peace. I wish so much that this person could learn to forgive. Not for the Father's sake, but for themselves. Forgiveness is central to Christian faith, but it is also, in a sense, central to the Tao Te Ching. Even though Lao Tzu rarely uses the word forgiveness, the concept is actually embedded within the very principles of Taoism. After all, forgiveness is a necessary consequence if we seriously follow the Tao Te Ching's teachings of learning to be present, to accept others, and to accept reality as it is, and to even accept the past and our past as it is, and to be relentlessly committed to becoming a non-anxious presence of patience and peace. Forgiveness has to be part of that. So let's look at ourselves. I believe that all of us have some form of trauma from various events or relationships in our past. We all have some trauma. And I hope that all of us are able to search them out if they aren't already obvious to us. 
and to pursue the practice of forgiveness and letting go. I challenge you today to examine yourselves and to find those shadowy places in your heart and to commit to doing the work to deal with them in the most Christ-like and the most Taoist way possible. So I pray and I hope and I encourage you to go forth in grace and peace.